Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that might be new here this morning, my name is Bruce Druksma. I am the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are glad you are here. We are in the middle of a series looking at Hebrews. We've titled it Limitless, talking about how limitless God is and how oftentimes the way that we think God is limited is through our own perspective and perception. So we're going to be digging in this morning in chapter four. So whether you have your phone and your Bible on your phone or Bible in front of you, I would ask you to uh, turn in there to chapter this morning, chapter four this morning. Uh, so this morning we'll be talking about grace and the idea that grace, oh, excuse me, hang on. Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle, middle of something. Right, two pepperoni, two sausage. Yeah, during the game. Okay, thanks. Apologies. Thank you for your grace with me this morning. We're gonna be talking about grace this morning. We're gonna be talking about, because we've all experienced that, right? Where somebody in the middle of something steps aside, ignores us, steps away, and they come back and they say what? Oh, thank you for your grace. Just a little grace with me this morning. Or maybe you've heard grace used to define somebody who is graceful, an artist, or a musician, or a dancer. They're graceful. Is that what grace is? As we talk about grace this morning, is grace merely a social comment? Thank you for your grace with me. Is grace merely a statement of somebody's fluidity of movement, their motion? Is, is, is that all that grace is? Or is grace, as we talk about grace in scripture, is grace something more? Is there something deeper when we talk about the limitlessness of God's grace? Have we seen grace as God merely overlooking the minor inconvenience of our sin, like somebody overlooking a cell phone interruption? Or is grace deeper? Is grace bigger? Is God's grace something more that we have limited it to our finite understanding of what grace is? And we go, thank you, God, for your graciousness with me, overlooking the minor inconvenience of my sin. I understand that that was just a social faux pas. Thank you for your grace. Or do we limit our understanding? And do we need to go deeper? Do we need to push in? So thank you for your grace with me this morning, so I think it's appropriate that this morning we take some time to dig in and understand what that word really means in scripture because while it does carry those other meanings, right? We know that somebody is gracious and graceful and those, those meanings are true and accurate, but scripturally it means something more. So let's understand biblically what we mean by grace before we dig in because our passage this morning is gonna talk about it. So what is grace? Literally, grace means unmerited favor, unearned favor, favor we do not deserve or do anything to gain. We don't gain it. In, a, in, the, in my illustration of the phone call, maybe you've been with somebody where time and time again, they've been patient and tolerant with you and you go, you know what, I'll have a little grace with them because they have been gracious with me. But grace as we understand it in scripture is unmerited, unearned, by no part of us. And Romans 11.6 lays this out very clearly. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works, talking about salvation. It cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace by its very definition is unearned on our part, 
unmerited favor, and it's a big deal. And we'll get into that. So we can see, biblically speaking, grace is dependent on only God. If we contribute or if we think we contribute in any way, we devalue it. It is no longer grace. If you think that somehow God's grace with you is earned through effort on your part, it is no longer grace. You now think that you are working your way into right relationship with God. And so we see God's hand at work all around us. This idea that we'll still look around and we'll see somebody who is far from God and we'll see God still moving in their life and and still giving them this grace, this goodness, this generosity. And we'll call that common grace, this idea that God is at work in the world and that is further evidence of his goodness. And so we have this common grace, but we also have this grace that we experience when we turn to him in faith. So we see the limitlessness of God's grace. We will see that these concepts both play out in this passage. The common grace given to all and the need for grace through faith as a necessary part of our salvation. So this morning, let's dig in. Let's look at Hebrews 4, the first couple of verses, and dig into what God has to say about his limitless grace this morning. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And so our passage this morning starts with this idea of rest. And this idea of rest is going to continue through the passage. But don't think or confuse that idea of rest meaning laziness. Or this idea that like this afternoon, I will rest by eating a lot of food and watching hopefully the eagles win, right? That is not the rest that this is talking about. That is not what we're saying. This is not about our ability to kick back. The idea of rest is the idea that we are united with God. This rest is talking about the unity that, they were, that the people of Israel were supposed to experience. This idea of rest is this idea that we are one with Christ. And we see here, first of all, in Hebrews, that grace is a valuable gift. God's faithfulness, God's grace is a gift. It's a valuable gift. It stands open to us. Imagine with me that you are you know, married or dating or you're with somebody special and, and it's Valentine's Day this week and they take you out. They take you out to, to someplace really fancy like the Loose Line Lodge, right? Someplace real fancy. And they take you there for Valentine's Day and they give you this gift, this token of their love and they set it on the table and you go, oh, thank you so much. And it sits there, unopened. Grace is a valuable gift. It's sitting in front of us. We have this gift, this gift that has been been given to us and it is valuable. It is significant. And the value is, is, is both intrinsic to what it is, but also in who it comes from. We sit there with this valuable gift in front of us. It's wrapped up, it's waiting. And we see that the people of Israel did not experience this gift. And some of us do not experience this gift because we do not engage with it. We do not open it. We do not experience the value it has because we don't open the gift. I heard a story uh, of a man who has uh, a USB stick. And, And last time I read that USB stick, he has two more attempts 
to unlock it with a passcode before it gets erased. He's forgotten the password to his USB stick. And as long as there's still two tries left to unlock that USB stick, it currently has $23 million worth of Bitcoin on it. And if he gets the password wrong two more times, it is no longer a valuable USB stick. It is a worthless US, well, not worthless. It's worth however much you can store on it. Currently, it's 23 million. And he has this USB stick and it's locked away in a secure spot and it's in his safe and, and he has it and he keeps on thinking of ways to, to open it, to unlock it, to get it out before it erases. It's valuable, not because of the USB stick, but because of what it contains. It contains something of significant value. So we need to respond. We take the free offer of grace and we enter that rest. We enter that rest because that rest is tied with our creator. Because God has given us this this valuable gift because it's who he is. God's goodness and God's grace are tied up intrinsically in who he is. And we have an opportunity to engage in that rest with him, which makes this a very valuable gift. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is not God merely overlooking a social faux pas called sin. Sorry, I've inconvenienced your day. Thank you, God, for a little bit of grace. It is valuable but it's only valuable to us if we unlock it, if we open it, if we tear off the wrapping paper and apply it into our lives. It has that value, like the USB stick, intrinsically in it because of who it's from, but we don't experience it. That man does not have $23 million to spend because he can't use it. He can't access it. So we need to access this valuable gift And so what does this grace look like? Our passage continues, verses three through five. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. And so we see the author ties this rest, this idea of of grace, this idea of rest, this idea of unity with God is tied in God alone. If you are with me, you are in rest. If you are not with me, you are not in rest. And so grace is bound up. It is found in God alone. The call for Israel is rest. And the example is their wandering in the wilderness. And so I want to unpack that a little bit. If you know the story, we know the story that, that Israel comes out of the promised land and they, they enter, they cross the Red Sea and they see God do incredible things. They see God move and we're hearing stories coming out of Asbury College of God moving and they see this experience, right? They see uh, the parting of the Red Sea. They, got, they see God go between them and the Egyptian army in flame. They see all of this that God does and they walk through the Red Sea and God conquers the Egyptian army that they couldn't conquer. And shortly thereafter, they find themselves in the wilderness without water. And they cry out to God and they say, God, are you with us or not? Where are you, God? If we don't have water, it is pointless to be here. And that's their disobedience. Because instead of seeing God's grace, God's provision, they think that that God's presence means that everything they have and everything they want is met. 
And that's not the lesson they were to learn. The lesson they were to learn is that God's grace is found in him alone, that God's grace is bound up in being with him, that whether they have water or not, God is there. And therefore they are with him and therefore they are experiencing his grace. And Moses does the same thing. So the first time when, when they rebel, God tells them, go out and strike the rock. And he goes out and strikes the rock and water comes out. Later on, they're gonna rebel again. They're gonna cry out for water and there's gonna be no water and God is gonna to say to Moses, go out and speak to the rock. And in his pride and in his frustration, Moses goes out and strikes the rock again and water pours forth. But that disobedience, that taking it on of himself, that opportunity where Moses says, it's not about being with you, God, it's about what you've provided. And I'm frustrated with these people I'm gonna make it right in my own way. I'm gonna strike the rock. And now he is also prevented from entering the promised land because he thought he could do it on his own. And so some theologians and some pastors have looked at this passage we're looking at this morning and they go, this idea of rest, this idea of being with God, this is only talking about someday. This is talking about heaven. This is talking about eternity. I disagree. I think we can look at, at Jesus' words in his prayer, in the Lord's prayer that we said last week. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. We are called to be with God in unity with him. That's how we experience his grace. And that happens here on earth as well. God cares about our needs. God cares about the fact that the Israelites were without water but he needed them to see that first and foremost, grace is found in him, not in his provision. Grace is found in Jesus Christ alone. Grace is resting in God's presence. But resting in his presence both here and, and now, not just in eternity. And so this passage talks about this idea that, that, that God created the earth and then, and then he rested. And that doesn't mean he wasn't active. We know that God is still active, so it doesn't mean that we get to kick back like God. Oh, I'm in grace, I get to sit back, I don't have to care, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Just the same way that God is still active today, even though he rested after creation. And it's tying this together to show that we are to be unified with God. We are to be one with God. Jesus prays in, in John 17 in his prayer that they would be one, talking about us, just as you and I, talking about him and the Father, are one. We are called into that unity to be one with God and grace is found there, resting with God, here and now, not just for eternity. Not a rest of disengagement, but in complete trust that God is in control, that his grace is sufficient for all our needs. And so with that, we can push into a broken world and we can engage the community around us and we can bring that common grace to everybody so that hopefully they experience the saving grace of being in relationship, of being one with the Father. Because grace is found in God alone. And Hebrews 4 continues, starting in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. We who believe in Christ have the grace of God with us now, but some do not. Some have rejected that once or twice. Some have never heard. But the call is for us today to take that with us because God's grace demands a response. The response is demanded. The people of Israel didn't respond. The people of Israel didn't respond later under David. And so he quotes again, hey, here's your opportunity. And some respond and some don't. And we see that all through Israel's history. We see this pattern. And we see it in our own lives, in our own community. We see times where we follow God and then we drift away and we, and we turn back. Because grace demands a response. If we just leave it on the table, it's of no use to us. We have to respond, we have to open the present, we have to unlock the USB stick. We need to respond to God's call of grace. We can't just sit back and say, it's fine. Because that is a response, that's a response, that's a choice not to engage. If I had that USB stick, and, and like he does, he can say he's worth 23 million. He can't do anything with it. Is he really? Is he able to engage with it? We can claim, yeah, you know, I think God is good, but if we don't engage, if we don't bring that grace into our life, if we don't look at it and say, God, I can do nothing on my own, separate from you. I need you and you alone in my life. I need that grace. That's the only way. Now we've engaged. Now we get the benefit. We, it demands this response. And for those that know the story, Moses and the people, and I've already shared a little bit of this, they leave. And this is the story he references. As they, as they cross, they hear God's call to enter the promised land. So they, they go out of the wilderness. They, Moses does the striking of the rock twice. And they're standing before the promised land. And God says, go in. I've delivered the land to you. And they respond. They respond by saying, nope, we're not going in. They respond by sending in spies. And the spies come back and they say, for those of you that remember the song, right? If you, were, if you grew up in the church, you were really little, 10 men went to spy on Canaan, or 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. Anybody know that song? Or is it just me? It's just me. Okay. Oh, thank you. All right. I was thinking, what kind of church did I grow up in? Um, there is a song out there, uh, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. T 10 were bad and two were good. 10 come back and say, look, the land is beautiful. It's gorgeous. The grape clusters are huge. The food, the land, everything is beautiful. But there's giants in the land. We can't go there. They're too big. Numbers 13, chapter 13, verse 33. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. We can't go there. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can because we have God. And Israel sides with the 10, we're not going. And God says, okay, if you're not going, you're going back in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire generation dies out and then I will give a new generation a chance. And you know what they say? All right, fine, we'll go. And God says, no, it's too late. You've missed the opportunity. Don't go, now you will lose. And they're like, no, no, we're gonna go. See, we trust you, we're gonna do it ourselves. And they go charging in and they, they get massacred. And they have to go back out into the wilderness 
And there's this, this is the story that is in everybody's mind as they're reading this conversation about rest because the promised land was rest. And they responded negatively and still assumed they got it. And they don't. They don't get it. And so the passage that the author of Hebrews is referencing is Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 talks about the rebellion of Israel when he says, today. And what I think is significant is he's tying together, in my mind, this idea that every time, every day is a new day to respond. Every day is a new day to respond. Israel rejected the response here. Then they had another chance to respond in obedience and follow God and go, okay, we were wrong, and now we will obey, and we will stay in the wilderness for 40 years. And they they ignored it twice. But then another generation comes along, and they get an opportunity to respond. And another generation comes along, and another generation comes along. And every day we have an opportunity, and every generation has an opportunity to respond to God's grace. And he ties it and he says, so do it today. And if not today, when it's tomorrow, do it today. Today, as long as it's called today, we have the opportunity to respond. To enter into his rest, to enter into relationship with God and experience his grace in this life and after. To rest from the work of doing salvation on our own and to trust God's grace, that he is the one at work. And my job is to respond and to accept that grace and to say, God, I need that grace because I cannot do it on my own. As people of this generation, and I I don't mean me as as a 40-year-old, my generation. I don't mean boomers or Gen X or millennials or Gen Y, Gen Z. I don't mean generation that way. I mean all of us with the level of access we have to God. The ability we have to open up our phone anywhere in the world and get millions of translations of the Bible and Bible studies. The ability to log into places like Right Now Media and see Bible study content anytime we want. The level of knowledge and access we have to God is unprecedented. And we need to use that. And we need to respond to that. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. I mean, the number of generations of, of throughout history, times when the average person was illiterate and didn't have that access and had to trust that what somebody else was telling them was true. One of the reasons that I'm so passionate about people being in their word when I'm talking is read it. Don't, don't trust that what I'm saying is what God is saying. Read his word. The Holy Spirit is working and moving. The Bible tells us to test the spirits, test what's being said. We have an unprecedented level of access, but we still have to respond. We cannot confuse that access, that knowledge with grace. We cannot confuse the two. The fact that I know a lot about God does not mean that I rest with God, that I've trusted him for my salvation. Or am I trying to still work it out myself? I've read the Bible every day, God, I've studied every Bible study, God, therefore I'm in, I know you. Have you let him in? Have you accepted that valuable gift? How do you respond today? And our passage continues in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's grace is valuable. God's grace is found in him alone. God's grace demands that we respond. But in case we're confused, God's grace is not a miscarriage of justice. God's grace is not a miscarriage of justice. And there's a lot to unpack in this passage. And so I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, although believe me, it's tempting. Um, There's a lot we could unpack here. But I want to start with, it talks about God's word being living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And I've just talked about the access we have to the physical word of God. And we do. But the word that's being referenced here, the word of God is not only referencing the Bible. The word used there is logos, which is the same word that John uses to talk about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, logos, and the word was with God. The logos was with God. It's talking about Jesus, not just the Bible. The Bible is his word but it's not him. And the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And that sword that we see there is not a sword like a battle sword. Although those existed as well and they were double-edged. The the reference we get in Hebrews is, is the knife that a priest would use to divide up the sacrifice. Because there were rules about how they had to take an animal when they sacrificed it and divide it up. These parts go here and those parts go there. And and the sword we get is this idea of, and that's where when it talks about dividing between bone and marrow. We we have this, this sacrificial imagery in our head. And as it's been talking about Jesus as the great high priest, and now it says, the word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We get this idea that Jesus is our intermediary. Jesus is dividing between, and Jesus is the one looking into our thoughts and judging our hearts. That We can sit there, if we, if we think that the word of God is just the Bible, it's easy to see it as a law book. And then it is easy to act in accordance with what it says. And I can act on the outside and and make it look like or feel like I'm following all the rules and yet Jesus is sitting there seeing my intentions and seeing my heart and dividing between them. And that's a sobering thought. And given these two factors, we see a more complete understanding of the section, God's active Word in our lives and in our world engages our deepest heart feelings. And Jesus, in one of his parables, tells the story of the vineyard workers, right? And these vineyard workers, where where the owner of the vineyard goes out in the morning to hire help. And he sees some people there and he says, hey, I'm looking for work in my vineyard. You're looking for, for work. I will pay you a fair day's wage. Come and work in my vineyard. And they go. And he goes back later in the day and he gets a few more. He says, I will pay you a fair wage. And he goes back and he gets a few more. I will pay you a fair wage. And he goes back and gets a few more. Until the end of the day, and and what I love about the parable is this idea that at the end of the day, the workers are there. Well, he's been there four times. 
He's not going in and selecting two or three each time. He's collecting all that are there that are willing to come and work. So by the end of the day, who's left? Those who haven't gone with him already, or maybe those who didn't show up until later. Those who were, you know, maybe looking for work, but not willing to get up early for it. Hey, come into my vineyard, come and work. And he calls them into the vineyard and he puts them to work. And as Jesus tells, continues in the parable, the end of the day comes and he calls forward those who came at the end of the day. Those who, again, weren't maybe willing to get up early, maybe those who weren't willing to put in the effort. He calls them first and he pays them a full day's wage. And you can almost hear the people at the end of the line, the ones who've been there all day thinking, oh good, payday. Because if he's giving them a day's wage and I've been here five times as long, I should get five days wages. And all through, he keeps giving them one day's wage and one day's wage and one day's wage until the ones at the very end, the ones who've been there all day are indignant. How unfair. And if I'm honest, that's who I am. I'm somebody who grew up in the church who's had every opportunity to respond and I responded to Christ at a young age. And it's tempting sometimes to look around at those who maybe have responded to God later in life and judge them for why they waited so long and then judge them that they get God's grace too and think that this is a miscarriage of justice. And just like those vineyard workers, I have it backwards. Because actually it is a complete miscarriage of justice. Because all of us, the only thing we actually deserve is death. It is a complete miscarriage of justice because unlike the vineyard workers where the parable breaks down, I have not done anything to gain my day's wage except ask for it. I've done nothing. I haven't become more Christ-like because of my effort. I've become more Christ-like because his grace. And so it is a miscarriage of justice entirely in my favor. And therefore, it's a miscarriage of justice entirely in all of our favors. If grace is a miscarriage of justice, we must remember that we too are recipients of unmerited favor. And finally, look at the end. Look at the focus. Our passage tells us we must give an account. When we read through the Bible, we see lots of passages asking for us to give an account and asking for God to avenge the wrongs of this earth. And it's tempting for us to take that on ourselves. I'm gonna fix it because it's a miscarriage of justice. But it's all about the heart. Jeremiah 7, nine through 10. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in my house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Talking about how they at that time we're going out and disobeying God and coming back and going, but if we have the sacrifice, I can just tap in. Paid, paid the price. I did it. I earned it. He's saying, no, that's not what it is. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In Matthew 15, 19 and 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. These are what defile a person but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are critical of Jesus for not doing the ceremonial law. And he's going, you have it backwards. We have been recipients of unmerited favor. We have not earned it at all. Our response, therefore, is obedience. We don't earn this by following these rules. 
And so we end where we began, dependent on God's grace. And so this morning, as we, as we wrap up, I wanna challenge you. I wanna challenge myself. If grace is a valuable gift, where have I treated it? Where have we treated it as a commodity? Where have we been maybe too casual in our lives? We've said, grace is something I have. It's this, it's this thing, it's this, it's this thing that, that God gives me freely because it's just him overlooking my minor social faux pas, my inconvenience of sin. Where have I not treated it as valuable? Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. For us Christians, grace is not a get out of jail free card. So where have I treated it that way? Where have we treated it that way? If grace is a valuable gift. If grace is found in God alone, where have we sought to build up our own kingdoms? Build our own pathways? Where have we decided that by reading the Bible enough, by praying enough, by acting enough, I can earn it? when it's found in him and him alone. And if grace demands a respond, where am I not responding? Where am I leaving grace on the table? Where am I not coming in repentance and saying, God, I need this free gift? And if you've taken that, how are you sharing that free gift with those around you? So they know that there's a gift out there that would cover these things. And finally, if grace is not a miscarriage of justice, where have I been arrogant towards others who need that free gift, going, they're not ready? Or where have I decided that, again, somehow through my own effort, I deserve it? And where have I not seen it for the miscarriage it is that has caused me to be humble to say, God, I need this, and I deserve none of it, and neither does anybody else, but we get it. Where do we need to take these things this morning home with us and remind ourselves that grace is limitless. And we need to respond. So would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that we cannot find the end of it. God, where sin abounds, grace abounds, but Lord, help us to respond. God, help us to respond in repentance and confession, God, to look at you and say, I need your grace. I cannot earn it at all on my own. God, I need your forgiveness. I cannot earn my way to heaven. God, I cannot earn my way into your presence on earth or after. I need that free gift. Lord, help us to take that valuable gift. But God, help us not to hold on to it. Help us to share it. Because God, you will not run out. I don't need to hold on to it for myself. So God, we respond to your grace in worship and we respond, God, by praising you. I pray this in your name, amen. As we end this morning, um, Ed prayed earlier for, for Turkey and Syria and the crisis going on there. If you um, feel called to step into that, I would encourage you to look at what the Free Church is doing. Uh, the EFCA Reach Global is partnering with local churches uh, to work in the humanitarian crisis there. So um, just be aware of that. Also, as Ed prayed, um, reminder that every Thursday morning we do have a community prayer gathering. Uh, would love to have uh, people join us. And this week it's at, at Delano Free at 7 a.m. if you can join us. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Have a great week. Stand against the power of our God in Almighty.